Hey everyone, the episode you're about to listen to is one of the very first ones that we did, and the sound recording is not that great. It took us a little bit to hit our stride, and we enjoyed these first episodes, but they maybe aren't our strongest ones. So we've got some better equipment and honed our skills. The recording quality gets a lot better around episode 10. Stick it out, keep listening, it gets better from here. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we're discussing album number seven on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 album list. This album is Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I think uh, we mentioned this once or twice before, but we have moved from the 60s into the 70s. Yes. Uh, all the first, was it the first five were all 60s yeah. albums, and then um, we're now into this chunk of albums from the 70s. That's right. So last week we talked about Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, 1971, and now we're into the next album is in the next year, 1972. Uh, ben, have you ever listened to this album before? No, I can't say that I have. Uh, 18 songs long. Um, I think I would have remembered if I had tried to make it through <laughs> a double album by a band that I've, you know, I've seen live, but I don't really have a strong affinity for. Do you have any Stones albums? Nope. Which is saying something for a band that has 30 studio albums. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, well, I got to tell you, I, I'm in. I'm in the same boat. The Stones, again, are a band sort of like the Beatles, in which I'd heard a lot of their music over the years. Mm -hmm. But unlike the Beatles, um, I never really wanted to get into the Stones. I never wanted to go deeper. I guess I never felt personally there was anything more there for me to go and find, which perhaps is not fair. I'm willing to accept Mm -hmm. that. But I hadn't listened to this album. Um, I recognized one tune. And not even by name. It was just once I heard it. Oh, they play this on the radio. That was uh, <laughs> that was tumbling dice. But but I had no, I really hadn't heard any of the other tracks before. Well, similar to Dylan, I'm hoping by the end of this episode we can make some sense of, you know, what it is about the Stones that we can appreciate, but that doesn't really resonate with us enough to say this is someone that we love. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure we'll get. I'm sure we'll get there. I think the key to the significance of this album really comes into context and culture and mm-hmm. when it came out and the fact that it felt new. And we'll, I don't want to talk about that too much yet, but uh, just listening to it, I'm really finding it hard to put myself there as someone who's never heard yeah. anything that the Stones did after that. So that's I'll just leave that as kind of a preface to it that... Yeah. Um, that again and that's been difficult i think for a lot of the albums we've listened to albums that came out long before we were born we can't listen to it really with virgin ears because we've heard everything else around it all these sounds so it makes it hard for us and i think at times unfair when we say ah this this album isn't new or it doesn't sound creative or whatever well that's not really fair for us to say 40 years Mm -hmm. later having heard everything that came after it correct if the first time maybe people were like whoa i've never heard anything like this and i think a lot of these albums that was the case so try and take that into perspective when we do this yeah but it is challenging 
Yeah. If you want some details, give them to me. This album was released on May 12th in 1972. It was the Stones' 10th studio album. They had been at it since the early 60s, just and a lot of times they're kind of parallel the Beatles in terms of their journey, except the Beatles had already broken up by this point, and the Stones are still touring to this day. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, uh, almost 50 years after this album was released, yeah. which is crazy, which is crazy. Um, the album was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, pretty much in its entirety. Uh, this album did hit number one in both the US and the UK. And total album sales uh, to this date are about 1.4 million worldwide, uh, which is a little lower than some of the other numbers we've seen, but impressive for a double album. Probably worth noting that they are one of the best-selling uh, artists of all time. They're, you know, they yes. have just a yeah. prolific amount of music out there. Um, but I think they're like number three or four in all-time record sales. Mm. When I think of the Stones, I think of them more for their singles. And so it surprises me just a little bit that an album makes the list this high. Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> because I think, well, I, yeah, I know them through their radio play. And their singles right. are really from all over their career. Yeah. And they have a lot of them. They do. They do have a, and a lot of recognizable songs for sure. As mentioned, this is a double album and the first double album on the list. Yeah. We're actually going to get into three in a row. Next week, we'll talk about The Clash's London Calling. And then after that, we'll talk about Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. And all these are double albums. That's four in a row, Mike. The White Album? The White Album. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. So, hey, now we have we have a trend, which yeah. we'll talk about maybe when we get to that or after or beyond. Kind of why is that? But do you think there was an obligation to include double albums over other albums because they're kind of special? That's a good question. I'm, uh, I know that of this list, Blonde on Blonde was considered to be the first sort of rock pop double album ever. Mm. And so that one maybe stands out as, as culturally significant, but yeah, you see all of these, maybe Blonde on Blonde unleashed, uh, something there, something significant mm -hmm. in the late sixties that uh, artists began to think beyond the time restraints of a two-sided album. And, and we'll talk about this when we get to Blonde on Blonde, but when you have the credibility and the artistry of Dylan, maybe you go into the studio and you say, look, I'm big enough, I'm talented enough, I'm just going to use all the tracks that come out of this recording session and, right. uh, and we'll put them out there. From a marketing and sales perspective you can charge a lot more for a double album. Right. Dare I say double. Well, and, and less but, than double usually, but that probably gives the fan a false sense of value. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Ooh, well, I can get two for two for less than two. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> um, it's a bulk buy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in terms of producing it, you have to produce maybe a little more packaging but mm -hmm. you don't have to produce two packages. You're still just right. producing one, uh, you know, liner, one sleeve. But you're stamping out two discs per, yeah. which probably doesn't cost as much more, yep. you know, than doing two separate single albums. So yeah, right. I think it's I think it's 
it could be, and I don't quote me on this, but it could be win-win for the for the record company. Yeah, less so in an era of today where where music is digital and oh yeah, um, you just don't see it all. You do see the sort of B sides follow up to albums that comes out, you know, a few months later. Uh, you know, it makes me wonder if in another era we would see those just lumped together as a double album. Uh, but because of the way music is purchased these days, it just doesn't make well, as much sense. You can fit so much more on even a compact disc True. than you could in the 80s when they first came out. Yeah, you can you're not bound files. by that. Yep. No. I want to talk about the album cover, which I don't understand at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, bla- it's black and white. It's a ton. It's probably like, what, 30 different small photographs or images Mm -hmm. uh did you do any research on this or know the backstory in this well so i guess it's important to talk a little bit about the context of how this album was recorded and released okay mick jagger wanted an album cover that reflected that the band was sort of uh on the on the run and sort of people of the world well-traveled and so you've okay. got this sort of collage of images meant to represent, I guess, you know, that we're, we are world travelers. We are, we are part of the, the counterculture. Um, and it all, the images almost have kind of a circus sideshow feel. I, I don't know if yeah. that's how the band saw themselves as like outcasts. Um, the album was recorded uh, in a couple of different locations, but they they were not in their native UK. In fact, they were uh, avoiding taxes, and so <laughs> and hmm. so rented a villa a villa in in France and spent several months basically avoiding having to pay their taxes and writing what became for them one of their their best albums of all time. Right. So the the title exile the the artwork on the cover. All of that, I think, is uh, pointing to this sort of outlaw kind of mentality that they had in that stage of their careers. I really, I really respect that and appreciate that artistry there. And I've had this question all my life, but really during this project, like how much of the packaging and the production is influenced by the artists? and the musicians yeah. and maybe other people like photographers and art designers and how much of it is controlled by the record company and the label. Mm. So it's really cool to hear these stories and understand that the artists had this say and this influence into not just their music, but also the, the album cover, which is so closely True. tied to the music. I really like that. I can, I can respect that. Perhaps it's similar to the double album, uh, phenomena that it takes until you're really a successful artist before you have creative say in what your cover looks like. I'm imagining when you are brand new, just breaking into the industry, there are restraints on what you can and cannot have a say in. And, uh, you know, they're at their point, the point in their career 10 years in where, um, they can say, Hey, just give us a collage of weird looking photographs. I'm guessing, had this been album number one for them, the record company would have said, absolutely not. That's nope. ridiculous. Nope. Um, but they've got the credibility built up by this time to be able to have an album cover that's a little bit more uh, out in left field, maybe. Um, I'm just imagining the 
you know, a record executive sitting in his office yeah. and giving the producer or the manager a call, you know, boy, how's, uh, how's the recording going for Exile? You know, and is oh, pretty good. Um, listen, Mick wants to do a double album. Oh, bloody hell. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like uh, these stupid artists, you know, How always wanted. Exactly. Yeah. Right. The the artist has a, a vision for, for their work. Yeah. But it's then the people working on the executive level who have to logistically make that happen, you know, yeah. working as a, as a manager, you know, in my industry, which is kind of wholesale and warehousing, someone can have a great idea, but don't necessarily see the logistical side of it. So I could appreciate that side of it going like, Oh yeah, it's one thing to say, Hey, I have this great idea and this is my art and it's personal to me. So I really, I really want to do it. And someone else saying, okay, but you got to understand what goes into this mm-hmm. from a logistical and marketing and sales and dollars and cents and all that. So, and then you don't want to tick off the artist too much because then they're not going to produce and make you money anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like this very interesting machine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are things that work well um, when artists go out on a limb. And uh, this album cover doesn't seem outrageous to me. I think there, no. there are lots of worse ideas that bands have had. It kind of looks iconic um, in a creative way. There are things that, that, artists go out and try and then because of the way culture shifts over time um they become really offensive <laughs> um i think when we looked at pet sounds uh and had that sort of uh petting zoo strangeness cover it made me think of uh the no effects album heavy petting zoo Uh-oh. and i went and looked at that album cover and was like yikes how did that ever get approved that's, um, that's- i'm sure it was just they wanted to be super punk and uh, and didn't mind that it was really offensive and weird. Um, I can't believe you brought that up. That is one of the grossest album yeah. covers. It's so weird. Yeah, and, and was don't. offensive when it came out, and it still remains offensive. Yeah, please. If you're not familiar, just don't 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 Google, Google it. it. Yeah. Don't look it up. It's not good. The other one that comes to mind about a, an artist going out on a limb and uh, and then having it really come back to haunt them is. A uh, bit of an obscure band that I think both of us listened to called called Squad Five O. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Mike. They had an album called Bombs Over Broadway. Yes, I do. Uh, which had the Twin Towers and planes flying above New York City, uh, which was released before September 11th, and then yes. had to be repackaged later uh, and I, taken I off the shelves. That. I remember that. Basically, out of the awareness that like we can no, it's no longer okay to allude to planes flying near the Twin Towers. Like, that's not <laughs> that's not edgy and artsy anymore. That's just painful. Yeah. So anyway, that's a long tangent, but gets to some of the... That's okay. I think what we've got there. I can see now the story after you tell me that. I can see the story on this album. I see kind of the sideshow thing yeah. there. Uh, maybe 40 years ago, I would have recognized some of these photos, uh, maybe. Mm. Oh yeah, I know. I remember that guy. I remember seeing this in the paper or magazine or whatever. So, uh, yeah, but it's it's certainly not offensive, but it is. It does jump out and it's iconic. Yeah, there's 18 tracks in this double album. I'm not going to list them all. Uh, ben, when you listened to it, did you have any favorites? Yeah, uh, "Tumbling Dice." I just love that song. I know it's got heavy mm. radio play. 
Yeah. I can't figure out why I love Tumbling Dice, but so many of the other tracks come off as fairly mediocre. Because they're all formulaic. All 19 songs are essentially like three chords. Mm-hmm. Um, so the blues riffs throughout. Mix, you know, wild uh, <laughs> voice. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, some little guitar ditties thrown in. But sometimes it really works well. And sometimes it just found, sounds like, you know, a background filler stock sample of what classic rock is. And, and there are times on this album where I think, wow, that really clicked. There's some genius there. And there are other times where I think that's essentially the same thing, but for some reason it doesn't, it doesn't connect. And I can't quite figure out what that is. And part of the thing that I'm wondering is if the sound of the Rolling Stones has just become synonymous with, uh, you know, 60s and 70s classic rock, that I don't, I can't zoom back like we were saying in the intro and, and, and imagine a world where this sound doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't sound experimental in the way that I bet it did when it first came out. And it doesn't right. sound exceptional anymore because their style was copied and rehashed and reimagined so many times that this just sounds, you know, like some, some aging rockers in a, in a bar on a Monday night, you know, it just, right. Yeah. A lot of them sound like, I don't know. I could do that. <laughs> uh, Maybe that's unfair. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the difficult thing about this, Ben, because yeah. a lot of it is kind of simple and we could do it yep. in 2010, 2019. Yep. Because this is how we've been playing rock blues for 40 mm-hmm. years. Because mm-hmm. of that. So, right. you know, yes, I agree with you. And that's what we get for listening to it in this time. Um, right. And I think that they kind of lay a foundation here. And I'm really trying hard to respect that and try and appreciate that. And it has not been easy because I've had a very similar reaction to you that it's just... It just straight up and down rock and sounds kind of boring and overdone yeah. to me. But it wouldn't have been overdone in 1972. Probably not. I do think. I think. I do think. Perhaps because of where they were at their careers, and you know, they have all this time on their hands as being <laughs> exiles from their own country. I time think is we on get, their side. I think. Yeah. I think <laughs> we get more songs here than we would have had this been one of their earlier albums. My yep. hunch is that a producer would have gone through here and, uh, you know, whittled out some of the less strong songs. <laughs> I won't say they're bad, but, you know, I went I went through just quickly the other day and was able to, you know, hack off, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> I wrote down in the notes, I'm ready to cut, rip this joint, shake your hips, which turns out that it's a cover of a Slim Harpo song. Casino Boogie, Sweet Virginia, Turd on the Run, I Just Want to See His Face, uh, which I noted sounded sort of like a jam session rather than a finished song. Right. Uh, I'm Not Signifying, Dancing in the Light, So Divine, and then the two alternate takes. That cuts it down dramatically to like 15, (laughs) 16 songs, which I think would have made a really solid, I have no idea if it would have fit on an LP back in the day, but certainly in the era of a CD, it would have made a really, I think, a sort of top 10 worthy Rolling Stones album that 
with all this extra stuff to me just feels uh, poorly, poorly packaged or poorly put together. I don't think I was able to listen to this album start to finish in one shot mm. at any point during that this. That says something. Uh, and I think number one is just time. Yeah. You know, just, I just didn't ha- ever, I might not have had that time, but I think there were moments when I did have time, but I, I found myself skipping through like, ah, I've listened mm-hmm. to these next four tracks. I'm going to try and get deeper in the album or, uh, I don't like this song. You know, I, I just couldn't get through the whole thing without getting a little bored. And it's so long. I've been listening ahead. Maybe you have too. Uh, I London Calling, Blonde on Blonde, and the White Album all clock in around the same time. And okay. I don't have that problem with those three albums. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I listen to all three of them all the way through. So there's yep. something about how we are digesting this album, you know, 40 years later that... Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it just feels tiring. I, I too, have a, have a couple favorites. Um, Tumbling Dice is one that I really enjoy. Maybe it's because I'm so familiar with it, but it, mm. it just got... I love the kind of bass, you know, in the in the, the break before the chorus. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Mm-hmm. I, I love that kind of thing. That's fun. And another one I really enjoyed was Ventilator Blues. And it was so different to me. Mm. It sounds way ahead of its time. I'm mm-hmm. hearing... I'm hearing tones of 80s and 90s rock in mm-hmm. this song. It's it's very dark. It's very heavy on the low end um, with the guitar and piano. And he's using... They've doubled up mixed vocal track. Um, and it's got a very dissonant kind of sound to it. It's, I thought it was just a really cool and innovative track. Mm. Not maybe as much a sing-along track, but I really, really appreciated it. And kind of just kind of could get into that groove, but it was a little just had a darker feel. Interesting. I really enjoyed it, and it's the one that kind of jumped out to me. Like it just as a first time I heard it, it was like, "Ooh, this is different. I like this because it was different than the just their regular kind of like when I heard the first like rocks off the first song. It sounded a lot like you know, start me up. You know, four four timing." Yeah. Here we go. Another just Stones rock tune. Yeah. And a lot of the songs felt like that little bluesy, but Ventilator Blues was just very different. Uh, different kind of timing and rhythm to it was like just exciting to hear something different, especially on yeah. an album that seems to just kind of go on forever with, to me, a lot of the same things. The walking minor key that that song starts with reminded me a lot of Come Together. And it's almost like a talking kind of intro to the song. The choruses are very different, obviously, but there's something about the the mood that that song puts off that I that I you know, I also I also kind of like it. I'm not getting the more modern '90s '80s '90s music that you are from it, but um, there is something different about that that stands out to the rest of the songs on this album. I think if you take the horns out of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the if you get to the bridge and the chorus, it's just kind of got that driving feel yeah. that more modern rock tune has, or more as we get into bands that were more classified as hard rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of that pulse, that feel um, that I felt was very innovative for the time. Mm-hmm. I can't believe 
I mean, maybe in 72 with this band, but then you put a, a, na- a, a song called Turd on the Run on your album. <laughs> you know, it's just like when I saw yeah. that, I was like, really? Oh, yeah. again, I'm lost, probably lost in translation. But uh, any other kind of favorites or songs that jumped out to you in any way? Um, I'm going to have to go back and edit what I said before, but. For some reason, Sweet Virginia was working for me this morning when I was listening through. <laughs> I think that was on my chopping block the other day. I, um, I had moments like that where I listened to it maybe another time and there was a song that I just kind of got into. Yeah. Maybe one listen to, but not the other times. And, yeah. and But that's the kind of thing. It just wasn't, again, as I'm reading the track list, a lot of them aren't jumping out to me mm-hmm. as... I, oh, I remember what that said. It just kind of all runs together. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was kind of, I just, I never really fully connected. Yeah, and I think similarly to Dylan, um, Mick Jagger is known for his attitude, not for his vocal skill. You know, he, he sings with a passion. Right. So maybe yeah. similar to Bruce Springsteen. And I think all three of those artists, I I struggle to connect with because I want them to be, uh, a little bit more musically proficient right. in yeah. terms of hitting their notes. Um, so maybe I that's where, that. I, where, where I get some fatigue really with all three of those artists mm. in trying to get through a whole album. Um, I just want them to be musically better. <laughs> and I, and I probably miss how revolutionary revolutionary the, the attitude and the style was for when they came out. That dreaded musical fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I find myself wanting ear candy in songs that I'm going to be humming the rest of the day rather than just like what feels like background noise. Uh, can you compare your preconceived notions with this album with what it actually sounded like to you when you listened to it? I didn't realize it was a double album, probably because I wasn't actually holding it in my hands. And uh, right. so that first open on Spotify where I was like, you have got to be kidding me. How many tracks? <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing. I also thought it would be better um, being this high on the list. I yep, thought, boy, all these tracks I'm going to know or they're re- immediately going to resonate with me. And so I was surprised at how much um, kind of filler it felt like there was for an album yep. that's this um, well-reviewed. I think back to that, Molson Rocks for Toronto concert and uh you know partially because of the mild heat stroke but partially because yeah. of, of uh you know just the sound I think I found myself feeling like you know I don't need to be watching this I'm I'm just going to sit back and and close my eyes and and enjoy the classic rock sound it doesn't interest me enough for some reason to really really want to figure out what what they're doing what's going on and uh yeah you you actually you actually laid down on the blanket yeah. for a lot of that yeah. concert um that set and i anyway. mean yeah yeah that sorry that it was a whole day kind of festival but right. that set they came on at nine thirty in the evening or so we had been there all day long it was super hot i will say this acdc came on before them maybe at eight o'clock i mean i was already tired <laughs> at eight o'clock but acdc had this energy that just got me up yeah 
and the stones didn't really have that energy. Now we were, it was a little later and we were a little more tired and it had been a long day. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. Um, did you fall asleep? I don't think I fell asleep. No, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I did. It might've been one, one of our friends might have, but I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I think I did sit back up when JT came out and sang with them. Oh yeah. That was What is going on here? Um, (laughs) yeah, it, it's also interesting to me. I think I assume that the stones are older than some of their peers. Uh, like they just seem to have aged hard. Maybe it's the <laughs> yeah they have <laughs> the the substance abuse. But but why is it that ACDC, um, who are essentially from the same era, maybe a few years later, uh, can pull us up off the ground? when we're exhausted and the stones don't, uh, is it, is it simply music sound or is there something else there that, well, I mean, ACDC has a way heavier electric sound, you yeah. know, from kind of a, a, a decade later, mm-hmm. it, there's that edge that just kind of pierces right through you. It's more of an electric distorted sound that doesn't quite do it with the kind of blues sort of fuzz tone mm-hmm. sound that, that Richard and, and Ronnie Woods uses. So yeah, I can, I think you're right there. Uh, and they do look, they are older, but they look older. Keith Richards, I think has stopped aging. I think he stopped <laughs> aging about 20 years ago. And as my, uh, stepdad always says, you know, I feel really bad about what kind of planet we're going to leave for my grandkids and Keith Richards. when we're all gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he'll still be here. Is Mick Jagger still a, a sex icon for some women? And it was two white guys wildly speculating. But I can't speak to that. But yeah, um, yeah, I think he is because, like you said before, it's it's attitude. Yeah. And for for women more so than men, it's more. It's not just about looks. It's about attitude, swagger, and swa- swagger. Yeah. Jagger (laughs) and you look at other guys who you know like I think of a George Clooney or a a Patrick Stewart Mm -hmm. these guys are not young and don't look young and still women say oh they're so sexy yeah you know uh, I think that Jagger has that same appeal even though he is old and wrinkly Um, I think for many women and maybe women who are a little older uh find so much appealing about him. So yeah, I think, I think he is, yeah. even though now he's in his late seventies Yeah, and looking, I mean, he has aged way better than Richards, obviously. Yeah. yeah he's still got it for sure. I and mean, it wasn't that long ago that we had, you know, that huge hit single moves like Jagger, you know, written about a <laughs> yeah. guy who was essentially like push. I don't know if he was 70 yet, but. Oh, I think so. Uh, I know he is now, but when did that come out? 2011, apparently. So he may have been just on the verge of hitting 70. But yeah, uh, you know, in some ways, his Mick Jagger's coolness has not gone away. Even if even if the sound isn't as relevant or or doesn't connect to people in the same way as it once did, he's still cool. He still has that attitude. I was surprised by the amounts, the amount of horns. Yeah. And uh, horn arrangements. 
And at first I was kind of excited by that, but I didn't find they added a whole lot. I felt that a lot of the horns were very gimmicky, kind of like, you know, like very, I don't know. It wasn't to be innovative. It was just like, uh, hey, let's go get some saxophones, you know, and and they did it. So Mm -hmm. it stood out, but then I was like, ah, it, it still didn't catch me. It contrasts quite dramatically uh, with two albums we've already talked about. The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, which is so orchestrated, uh, right. so layered, but but each edition seems intentionally thought out. Same thing with What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. We talked last time about there are strings present on almost every track, and they're, they're added in so well that you almost don't even notice they're there. Um, you're right. There's something about the horns on this record that feel almost like, you know, I can imagine they're in this rented villa in the French countryside, and they're like, well, we've pretty much done it now. Um, we still got some time on our hands. What else could we add? Oh, what if we brought in right. some horns? Yeah, I know a guy in the village down there. He probably has a couple of buddies. and um, It just almost feels like an <laughs> afterthought rather than something yeah. that's been really well thought through and i think when your music is selling based on your swagger and your attitude it's less important to have it be musically um awe-inspiring and so you can put you can put horns on just for their attitude rather than for their musical quality right and again and i've said this before and in conclusion i still just find it really difficult to listen to this Mm-hmm. not having heard Stones music and rock music for the next three decades. So right. that just makes it hard to have the same perspective as listening to it for the first time without hearing anything that came after it. Absolutely. So that's, and and, I, and I, I really want to try and be a little easier on the album and a lot of our comments. And we've said this already, but, you know, this, maybe more than any other album we've listened to, just it's not hitting me but I want to recognize why that is and that that might not, I don't want to say, Oh, that's why it's not a good album. No, that's just my, that's just where we're listening to it. The space we're in right. now. So that really, yep, I think is important for this album. I think we could agree that there's a lot of things in this album that are very dated. Do you think that the music or the lyrics or any of it is relevant today? This, this may sound harsher than, it, than it's intended, but I think that there's some value in being able to point to this as a sort of origin yes. or, or seminal um, yes. recording. To be able to say you know, to my kids someday, hey, do you want to hear what you know, the Stones did or what the Stones added to music? I think I'll be able to dust this one off and play a few tracks and say, like, see what they're doing here? This mm-hmm. was new then. And uh, you, know, you might not be all that impressed, but... Notice what they're, you know, notice what they're doing here and what they're opening the gates for. Um, so in that way, I think it's still relevant. I, I just think it's become um, perhaps so much a part of the what's floating in the ether that I think it's lost that, that ability to capture us in ways that some of the albums we're holding it up against still have not. And, uh, and I can't quite figure out why that is. What what is it that um, that makes me ready to skip these tracks so quickly? Whereas you know Marvin Gaye mm. just in, in, in captures something a quality that I want to just keep going forever and ever. 
or the Beatles or the Beach Boys, uh, you know. Right. I felt that there were some really familiar rock sounds, and I think that some of them were even ahead of their time. And I appreciate that that laid, you know, a ground level for a lot of rock music mm-hmm. to follow. So from that perspective, it's relevant. But in terms of just playing it now, I think because it's been built on so much, it's it's kind of been surpassed. Yeah. And again, that does sound harsh, and I don't mean it to sound as harsh as it does, but but music has evolved, I think, in a way from this that's kind of made it better. Um, yeah. And I know that sounds negative, but I don't mean it to be, although it's very different than like the Beatles. Yes, music evolved from that, but you can still go back to that and it's just as relevant and enjoyable. This is very different. But I think this this is a more mature rock sound. Yep. And I think that it did take rock to places that the Beatles music didn't. Yeah. And that's important. It's very significant. Would we have something heavy like Metallica without kind of stuff that happened on this album and that happened in music, you know, stuff like ventilator blues and that's really dark and, and heavy sounding, you know, maybe it led to other things. Yeah, perhaps. And again, similar to, uh, Dylan's highway 61 with like a rolling stone. Uh, I do find myself wondering if rolling stone, the magazine, really needed to include a Stones record in their top 10 to yeah. you know, tie it all in with the title of their magazine. As we listen to more Stones albums, you know, maybe we'll find that there's albums that we like more, but they had to, maybe they felt they had to pick one and this was the one that maybe had some historical significance. So they went with it, yeah. but yeah, I, I'm wondering about that obligation. So with that in light, um, was this position on the list sound logic, Ben? No, I don't think so. I think it's primarily on there for the impact that it made in music history, not for its actual standalone in a vacuum quality. Right. And I think that's quite different than all the albums we've listened to so far, with maybe the exception yeah. of the Dylan record. One exception. And yeah. uh, and so I think for the same reason that I wanted to bump down uh, Highway 61 Revisited, uh, maybe there's something about albums with road names. I I, uh, <laughs> I just feel the need to nudge them down the list a little bit further. Are you going to do that? Are you going to do that with Abbey Road? <sighs> well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with you. I think. The band is iconic. The name of the album is iconic and it's significant. I think those are all really good reasons to have it high Mm -hmm. on the list, but musically I find it's not memorable. It's way too long. Yeah. And, uh, I wouldn't put it in the top 10 and, and I might even, if there's going to be a stones album in the top 10, I might even find another one, uh, that is better. So no, I don't think this was sound logic. I think it's, there's albums we're going to come to that are a lot better. I'm interested to find that out. My, uh, my knowledge of the stones is mostly their singles. So it will be, it'll be an education every time we come to a stones album. And I think they're on here seven or eight times. So, uh, it'll be fascinating. Uh, you know, listening ahead to the next Dylan album, I'm already feeling like 
you know, those two could be flipped. So we'll see if that's, if that sounds the same for the, the Rolling Stones as well. So what have we got coming up next week? Yeah. Next time we're discussing album number eight on Rolling Stones top 500 album list. That happens to be London calling by the clash. Uh, a friend of ours, Dustin Wood, who uh, is the bass player in a band that uh, was around for a little bit called Graham PM, is going to be joining us as our special guest next week. Dustin reached out to us because of the significance that The Clash has had throughout most of his life. And I think that's something different than you and I uh, have with The Clash's uh, great album, London Calling. And so it'll be good to have you know, an authority on... Uh, on that band or at least someone who has loved them for longer than either of us have. So it should be fun. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And we want to thank you once again for listening and we hope to see you next time. Talk to you soon, Mike. Okay. See you, Ben. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page on Instagram or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.